Hi, good afternoon. My name is Danny Lee. Let me first of all say thank you to Audi for their generous sponsorship of the whole Life in Pictures strand. Now, some performers can appear in just a single scene, and they instantly become all that we remember of a film or TV show for years to come. And others can take the full weight of a story from start to finish. But we're here this afternoon to celebrate one of those very rare performers who can do both, and they do it flawlessly, Viola Davis. <laughs> I think you may have a few fans. <laughs> just a few. First of all, let me congratulate you. Because last weekend, you won a Golden Globe for your new film, Fences. Oh, in thank the intervening you. between then and now, a BAFTA nomination as well. Yes. Now, you talk to some actors and actresses, and they'll say, well, awards are simply the icing on the cake. You know, the, the real reward is the work itself, and awards don't mean that much. Mm -hmm. I wondered, as someone who has had a lot of love from award ceremonies, and I think it will probably get a lot more during their career, <laughs> how do you feel about awards? I probably feel the same way, is that I'd rather get the job than the award. Sure. Let me just say that, but um, it is the icing on the cake. I have been on both ends of the spectrums of not getting the award, which is brutal too, sure. right? But I always focus on the silence after the awards. The flowers come, you know, the champagne comes, and then nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to go back to work. And, and I don't know how most actors feel, but I know with me, Every time I start a job, I always have the imposter syndrome that this is going to be the job where people find out that I'm the hack that I am. You got to go back to work, man. And you can't bring the award to work. Sure. It, it's not going to play Annalise Keating. Sure. I, mean, I suppose it's a question of seizing the moment, though, while you have that platform. And it was interesting last weekend, you thanked Dan Davis, your father, you mentioned Dan Davis, your father, in the Golden Globes yeah. speech. I wonder, was that a spur-of-the-moment decision, or did you think, actually, if I get the moment on stage, I will be doing that? It sort of was, was both that during the course of shooting Fences, it just occurred to me. It occurred to me the whole generation of men in Troy's era. My father was born in 1936. That is the height of Jim Crow laws in St. Matthew, South Carolina. And even when my dad died of pancreatic cancer, he could barely write. He could write his name, and he really tried to read thick books. But really, he was barely literate. And he was an alcoholic. My father was a very complicated man, I would say. But it occurred to me when he was dying that I wanted to preserve his stories. Sure. And I get the feeling in life that the only stories that are preserved are the people who've somehow shifted the culture, the Martin Luther Kings, the Medgar Evers, or you know, a great musician. But the average man, somehow their stories are forgotten, especially the average black man. And those are the stories that August Wilson preserved because it's in that average person that really they're the keepers of history. Sure. They're the ones who let you know what was absolutely happening at that time. That's why I mentioned him. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what you could share with us about <clears throat> your childhood and I guess specifically how it shaped you as an actress. It shaped me as an actress, um, like anyone's childhood would shape you as an actress. I mean, I grew up in, I always say, abject poverty, because I hear so many people say, I grew up poor, too. There were times when we didn't even have breakfast. No, I grew up poor. That's a rung, <laughs> that's a rung lower than poor. I didn't have breakfast, lunch, or dinner, you know. That was how I grew up. I mean, you can imagine, you could do the math. If you have a mom who has an eighth grade education, a father who has a fifth grade education, and his skill was he groomed horses. He groomed some of the most famous horses in history, but he was a groom. And we moved to Central Falls, Rhode Island when I was two months, three months old. And so we lived in Rhode Island in abject poverty in condemned buildings that were infested with rats. A lot of times, almost never did we have hot water. Plumbing never worked, never had a phone. That was really the most 99.9% .9 of my childhood. 
And in terms of it, it always feels as from outside the profession that a lot of acting is about confidence or about drawing on a kind of inner strength. And I wonder, I mean, that surely your upbringing left you with, with confidence to make up. You know, there's that sense, I think, among people who live in poverty that it's somehow their fault. I don't necessarily feel that acting is about confidence. I feel it's about sensitivity. I feel it's about being a keen observer of life and being affected by the things that you do see. I imagine that most people probably, it's like Harry Potter, when you see you know, Hermione and Harry Potter and they go to the, the train station and most people are not even aware that they're walking through walls and all of that. That's how an actor is. Actors walk through life almost like ghosts. They're the ones who see everything. They see it all. They see all the stuff that people take for granted. Idiosyncrasies, the mess, the shortcomings. They soak it up. And that's what I did in my life. I knew all the drug dealers. I knew the people. I knew the people who were the pedophiles. I knew the people who were the town drunks. I you know, knew all the people who went to jail. And I looked and I watched and I soaked it in and it really has been those kind of observations that has informed my work much more than confidence. Are you still a people watcher now? All the time. I watch people all the time, which can be a problem <laughs> because, you know, when you're watching, sometimes you can forget to be kind of in life when you're observing it. But the beauty of act, I love actors. Well, sometimes, sometimes they can be a pain <laughs> in the ass. But what actors do is they celebrate it. Whereas most people try to hide it. Sure. We want to expose it. And I think that has been instrumental in sort of saving my life. Saving my life in a way that I felt that I was really good at taking all that stuff and using it in my work. And the stage is a very sacred place because it is the place that you can leave all the pee and the poop and the snot and all of that, and it can be celebrated. The more you can expose it, the more it will be celebrated. With the screen, I wonder what your relationship was like with the screen as a, as a child, with movies and TV. I mean, was it just <clears throat> escapism that you wanted, or was there a deeper connection? All of it. Okay. All of it. I loved it. My sisters and I lived for, you know, every year the Ten Commandments, every year Willy Wonka, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. I mean, the list goes on and on. Bella Lugosi and Christopher Lee loved Christopher Lee. We soaked it up. And from a very young age, I can always distinguish the actors from just the mere entertainers. And not that I did not like the entertainers, because I love the Red Fox, people from Good Times, you know, That's My Mama. These are all the black shows back in the day. But I always knew that Isabel Sanford was the one in Jefferson's that was the actor. I always knew in Alice, I said, those are all actors. They come from the stage, and it made me lean in more. I could uh, separate the kind of gimmicky things that actors did from the real craft, and that excited me. So at what point do you move from that, from that kind of appreciation of, of acting to thinking, actually, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. And then you start on a road, which I guess then takes you to Juilliard, ultimately. Well, I think that what happens, because, you know, Miss Tyson is the one who was the game changer. Game changer, absolutely. I can mark the day I wanted to be an actor. Watching that performance, her age from 18 to 103 was it on a stick. Because I could not believe that it was the same woman. I watched how she used her hands and her mouth and the fact that she looked at a look like me. Because when you see a physical manifestation of someone who looks like you doing something that magnificent, then it makes you believe you can do it. 
And when a love is ignited, a love of the craft, not a love of celebrity, you want to do it in every capacity you can. I think that's where a lot of young act, not all, but a lot of young actors go wrong. I mean, I have performed church basements, basketball courts. I have performed in a theater where there was only one person in that, in that audience. I have performed off-Broadway, Broadway, every regional theater, every chance I got, I wanted to do that. And the goal was to be as good as Miss Tyson. It sounds so specific, though. It's so interesting, because I think in our teenage years, everything's quite fluid, and a lot of performers will, they just want to perform. And that could be a question of acting, that could be a question of doing music, it could be dance. They just want to be on a stage. With you, it seems very, very particular. It was very particular. L listen, I tried to do all those things, <laughs> but I didn't do all those things well. I mean, I did a one-woman show of Ciceretta Jones, who was a famous opera singer who came out of Rhode Island, my hometown, and she performed in some of the biggest opera houses throughout the world. And so I did a one-woman show that toured several parts of Rhode Island, singing 14 different songs, opera songs. Okay. I think we're all waiting for <laughs> and, a reply. You know, and here's the thing. The closest I could come to, you know Meryl Streep's performance at Florence Foster Day? <laughs> <laughs> That was me. That was me screeching. And I remember my sisters came to see me and they were like, do you hear it? <laughs> but you know what? As humiliating as it was, and it was humiliating, <laughs> every performance I did of that show, I tried to be better. I just tried to be better. I tried to control the things that I could just to make people believe that I was actually that woman. And then you embark on a stage career, and I guess that that whole experience you've just described, which I think you're being a little teensy bit modest about, I guess it's toughened you up a little bit, because, I mean, stage acting is, from everyone I know that's, that's acted on stage, it's tough, and it's, hard, and it's kind of lonely as well. It's absolutely lonely. It does toughen you up, I suppose, because it does take courage to be an actor. And it takes courage because, and I forget who said it, that acting is about standing in front of an audience naked and turning around very slowly. <laughs> Most of the time, you do it in acting school because, frankly, frankly, you don't get the roles that will show what you do. You just don't. Like, I mean, I can look at a slew of my roles and they were like two or three days of work. Whereas in acting school, I played, you know, Paulina in Winter's Tale. You know, I did some really fabulous roles, but on screen, I would be so-and-so in two scenes. In acting school, you always have that scene. There's an exercise that you do in acting school where you have to do something very, very private. You could choose whatever it is. I'm surprised at what most people choose. They choose going to the bathroom, which I'm like, oh, can we, uh. <laughs> And some people would choose masturbation. Some people would choose getting naked. Whatever it is, is to choose something very, very, very private and forget that people are watching. And the more you could do it and the more uninhibited you are, the better. The reason why you do that exercise is to infuse it in your work. Because think about it, a lot of the scenes that you do are not public scenes. You're having a scene in a bedroom with someone, and it's not necessarily having sex. It's just something that's private, something that is exposed. That takes courage. It takes courage. I'll leave it at, at that, because I was going to make an editorial comment, and someone upstairs told me, shut up, Viola. <laughs> I may come back. I may try and get the editorial comment. And hopefully I will have forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> it will be perfect. I mean, you mentioned just then in terms of screen work, having to, I guess, make quite a lot of very little. It made me think about your first screen role was Substance of Fire. And is that what you got your, your Screen Actors Guild card for? Yes. And that's, and that's with a character that doesn't have a name at that point. Her name was Nurse. Right. Right. <laughs> 
And yet somehow you wanted, I guess you wanted to, to do screen work and to actually, I, I'm, I'm wondering at that point, combine the stage and the screen or to, to maybe concentrate on screen. It's stuff. not a matter of wanting. It's just, that's what you do as an actor. I'm at a point where I, I listen to people all the time saying, you want to be a stage actor, a TV actor, a screen actor? And I'm thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> I wanted to be an actor. Your, your agent calls and says, I have an audition for you. Like, okay. And you know what? I'm going to just be honest. Is Sometimes you do it for the money. Because 95% of us are unemployed at any given time. All these people you see up here represent 0.007% of the profession. They really do. You know, most actors out there, they're struggling to eat. They've mortgaged their homes if they have one. A lot of them have put off having children, put off. They have a horrible Peter Pan syndrome. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I see actors all the time who have $200,000 in student loans because they went to an acting school like NYU or Yale, and they have $200,000 in student loans, but I don't want to do television. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, myself, the one who grew up Poe, and I'm thinking, who's going to pay for your student loans? Sometimes you do the job for the money. Listen. Meryl Streep, and I always use her, I, I'm going to apologize to her once I can sit down and have a great martini because she loves martinis. <laughs> once we can have a martini, and she is one of the few actors that throughout her whole career has had fabulous roles. But for the most part, a lot of the roles you get are going to be really shitty. <laughs> but guess what? You still have to dig into that role and do the work. That's the career of an actor. So I don't care what I'm doing. I'm an equal opportunity actor. Sure. <laughs> Let me ask you, you just you've just, you brought up TV. And I think, I'm trying to remember, it was like 2000 or something. I think it was the first time I saw you. It was in Law and & Order. And Law & Order is a hugely popular show. Still gets repeated a lot in the States and in here too. So people will still be seeing your appearance on Law & Order. So, I mean, tell me how that was for you. Because you played a killer. You played a serial killer. Oh, that was Law and Order Criminal Intent. Right, okay. I loved. Right. Yeah, I kind of wanted to find out how that was for you. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I loved playing that role. Yeah, I played a serial killer. I think she kills a family with a baseball bat. And um, I think I was a security guard who was running some kind of scheme and making money so that I can afford to send my kid to private school. Sure. Bit of a sociopath. I loved it. I loved it because I get what has happened for me in my career, and I think I could speak for many dark-skinned women, is there is a sense that we want to be overly sanctified in roles, overly domesticated in roles. If we are mean and unlikable, we're cussing someone out. I have cussed. So I, I cussed George Clooney out in so many movies. <laughs> Tell it like it is, you know. Um, I know what to say. You, I don't need Buddha, Jesus. I don't need anyone. I'm going to cuss you out because I know what to say. <laughs> that it was refreshing to play someone who literally was way more complicated in their pathology. That was not necessarily likable or not likable, but someone something different, something different, something different to show that we are indeed complicated, that we do have a pathology that's not necessarily just kind of four things that I always play. You just, okay, we're going to play strong today. We're going to play sassy today. So I always hate when I read a review and I've tried so hard to make the character complicated, and I see a review written by someone who's a great reviewer. The adjective they always use is, and Viola giving a very soulful performance. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> the thing that stayed with me about that performance as well was the amount of time that you were on screen as well, because it was a great role for you to kind of sink your teeth into, because actually in movies, you were appearing, you had kind of great little nuggety parts in some interesting movies, but then you were 
here and gone. And that must have been a little bit frustrating. Kind of, it must have felt like hard ground as an actress. Let me tell you something. All of it is frustrating. I, I don't care if I'm in 15 scenes. If when you put pen to paper and you don't have an imagination to then begin the process of saying, okay, this is the first question I'm going to ask. Who is she? Who does she love? What are her secrets? Did she have sex that morning? If you haven't asked any of those questions, but you put me in a lot of scenes, then it's just as bad as being in two scenes and having no name. You know, and I do that all the time. I, I see a lot of people in movies, and people say hip, hip, hooray, there's a black woman in the movie. But by the time she's on the screen, I'm asking all kinds of questions about her, and by the time I've tried to answer them, she's gone. Sure. The most revolutionary thing you can do is write a human being. That's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're someone who has this incredible perceptive sense of their own characters, and I wonder when you mention that, whether you want to write yourself, why aren't you writing screenplays? Because your screenplays would be amazing, so why aren't you doing that? Well, you think so? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Meryl Streep just um, sent me a text about that, but I'm outing her today. <laughs> but um, she just wrote me a text. She says, why don't you write yourself? I'm always wondering where people get the time to do that. And maybe I'm incredibly lazy, but I have a six-year-old at home. I'm doing a TV show. I'm thinking, when do people have time to write? But it's not necessarily something that I feel extraordinarily uh, confident in. I'm, always, I'm the one who's already, always critiquing other people's writing. <laughs> so maybe it's in my future. I wish you would. <laughs> I wish you would. You've mentioned Meryl Streep a couple of times, and I want to talk about doubt, because doubt suddenly, after 15 years of doing screen work, suddenly doubt becomes this landmark role. Mm -hmm. Suddenly people are very, very aware of you. I wonder, and this is, it's, it's a one-scene role, I wonder how, how much competition there was, first of all, to get that role, and what the kind of audition process... Right, okay. Tell us a little bit about that. Whenever there's a great role out there for a woman of colour, everyone has auditioned for it. <laughs> And you know what? Here's the thing, too. You can get a little egotistical by saying, oh, my God, I'm going to audition for this. I really want this role. And I auditioned for it, and I got a call back. And it was a screen test. And in my mind, I thought, it's down to me and Adrienne Lennox, mm -hmm. who did the role on Broadway, fantastic actress. So I said, it's me and Adrienne Lennox. I'm so nervous, but it's me and Adrienne Lennox. So I had to fly to New York for it. I fly to New York, they put me up, and they give me a call sheet. Seven different actresses. Wow. wow. Everyone from Audrey McDonald to Taraji P. Henson, everyone was on that call sheet. And we each had 45-minute sessions to screen test. You get to the venue, which was a big warehouse, and everyone is being put in hair and makeup. So you see seven different Mrs. Millers. <laughs> and my favorite part is you hear all their auditions. And my other favorite part <laughs> is you hear everyone going, oh my god, she knocked it out of the ballpark. Oh my god. So to answer your question, yes, it was very wow. difficult. Wow, OK. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good answer. Who'd be an actor, mm -hmm. I mean, really? You mentioned preparation a moment ago, and I wonder with Mrs. Miller, I mean, how much preparation had you done? How much work had gone into what we're about to see? A lot. Right. I could not understand that character. I could not for the life of me understand that character. You know, and this is not a slight to John Patrick Shanley. It's not a slight to, to anyone. It's a, probably a slight to me. But there is a bit of an allegorical, metaphoric element to doubt. Almost Mrs. Miller being a device to present an idea. An idea of if you do have a son who, could, who is gay and whose father beats him every day because he knows he's gay, then I don't care if this man is having sex with him as long as he 
loves him. He's taking him under his wing. He's doing all of that, okay? But I think it was presented as an idea. I always say that this, that the writers, they write something incredibly dynamic. You have to make it work. Sure. Those are two different things. I didn't get it. Maybe because I'm a parent, I don't understand how a mother could sacrifice her son that way. And I did not want to play her like, yes. I didn't want to make a judgment on her. I still, I thought it was more interesting in making her incredibly nurturing, but a woman who's willing to do that. I think that's more interesting as opposed to making a judgment and saying the only woman who would be able to do that is she's got to be cold. She's got to be all of that. So I had to write a bio that was, I stopped at about 100 pages, but it was about four months of calling everyone I knew and making them read it, talk about it, everything, before I had my aha moment. And you're the woman who just described yourself as lazy, and you've just done that. Yeah, yeah I did. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look. I mean, this is, this is the, you know, it's Viola's scene from Doubt, and you're confronted, really, by Meryl Streep's sister, Aloysius, who is convinced that your son is having an inappropriate relationship with, with the priest. And yeah, yeah. it's just, mm -hmm. what was your response the first time you saw that film? Because the actor is often, you know, the last in line of the cast and crew to see, you know, you'll go to a cast and crew screening, maybe just before the film comes out to the public, and finally see what you've done. So how did you feel about that? The first time I really saw the scene was in the looping session, ADR session. I was so depressed. I thought it was so horrific. I remember I went home, I went to a restaurant in Santa Monica, and I had a salad to go, and four bags of bread. And I went home and I laid down for maybe a week. The bread was gone after five minutes. And I ate, I had the blanket over my head until one day my husband finally got hip to the fact that I wasn't getting off the couch. And he said, what's wrong with you? And I said, Julius, this is gonna be the end of my career. It was." Horrible. I went to looping, it was horrible. And he said, Well, what was Meryl doing in the scene? <laughs> and I said, I don't know what the hell she was doing. I wasn't looking at her. I was looking at me. <laughs> There's no more to say about that. Okay, now clearly, I think we can say you were wrong about that. I think that's fair to say. But at what stage did you realize that actually people were latching onto the, to your performance in this movie more than any other factor? You're there with Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, mm -hmm. great actors all. But you walked away with that movie and you must have been aware that as soon as the first reviews came out, what people were talking about was you. Yeah, but you know, it's not my style. That's what I always say. It's not my style. I mean, I get what people were saying. And I love that because any actor who has the imposter syndrome, which is all of us, we don't want to be found out. You always want to be better. That's all. You always want to be better. So when you watch that scene now, are you looking to where you could improve it? Because from the outside, it doesn't look like that's All the time. Really? You know, the one thing that I really wanted to get in that is because I did not see Adrian Lennox's performance. I just wanted to do it myself is I wanted that scene to feel like a confession. I didn't feel like that last part of the scene of, you know, maybe some of those boys want to be caught, that that's just information that she would offer. It's 1968, I'm trying to remember, and she's black. African-Americans have very specific ideas about homosexuality. That I don't think that that's something that she would just offer up. That's something you gotta kick out of her. So I really wanted that last scene to be a confession. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I mean, once the performance has worked its way into the world, 
there is suddenly something which you haven't faced until that point, which is like the pressure of celebrity, you know, and suddenly mm -hmm. people are talking about you not just as an actress, <coughs> but you're Viola Davis, the face on a magazine cover, you know, mm -hmm. Viola Davis <coughs> being written about by journalists. Was that a, an adjustment to make? Because you strike me as quite a private person in some ways, in some ways. I'm really not that private. Okay. It's good to know. I just think no one's really looking at me like that. I, so I get off as looking like I'm private, which I love. <laughs> I'm private. I don't really think I'm known for anything other than my work. I'm not known for representing Revlon. <laughs> and I sort of like it that way. I was a journeyman actor for many years. I'm a character actress. I'm 51. So the hardest part of the celebrity part, I have to tell you, is, and I always do this with a story. It's a very, very brief story. I went out with my daughter at Target. You guys, I don't know if you have Target here, but Target is a, is a store that I love. <laughs> and I went with my daughter, and I never dress up when I go out. I got some messed up hat on. I look like, you know, I just got out of jail. And um, I had my daughter with me, and we have a blast. We go to Target. We take pictures of that dog that they have at Target with the little bullseye on it. We buy a bunch of stuff. I went to Target, and the paparazzi got me. And I really looked toe up. <laughs> and then I had a party at my house. And I had someone that, who came to the house, who will never come to my house again, by the way. Someone mentioned that picture, and she said, oh, I want to look for it. She got her phone. She looked at the picture, and she held it up in the middle of the party. And she said, now, Viola, what did you learn from this picture? And I said, I should have worn a different hat. <laughs> but I think that's what I hate about celebrity is that you do, I shouldn't say hate, I don't like it as much, is you do so much publicity that you begin to see that that is what it is that you do. And it's not. It really is just a byproduct. So you go to Hollywood and you have a bunch of people and they're out there constantly. You know, you've got to wear the new color. Gray is the new color. Viola, you're going to go out to, to the grocery store looking like that? And, ooh, Viola, you're going to do, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go out looking like that because this is not what I do. Sure. That has been the, the hardest part of, of celebrity. Sure. And the perception from outside, I guess, as well, is that when you have a role like that, which is seen as a breakthrough, seen suddenly, you know, as people are talking about Viola Davis as if you've come from nowhere, the perception is that suddenly there are thousands of brilliant roles just kind of coming through the door. But was that your case? I mean, did, did things change in terms of the kind of work that you were being offered at that moment? I just was offered more work after doubt. I was just sort of offered more roles like that in terms of the size. I was just getting paid a little bit more money. My career didn't change until after the help, and then it really hit after How to Get Away with Murder. How to Get Away with Murder has been the game changer. And just FYI, nobody understands what it is that an actor does. Nobody understands. Actors don't understand it. <laughs> I, I listen to actors all the time, and, and I'm just baffled. I really am. I'm, I'm totally baffled. Nobody understands, not even a little bit. Well, I want to try and unpick that a little bit. We've got a couple, because I want to try and get through yeah. Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which I thought was a phenomenal performance from you. And then mm -hmm. let's talk about the help, and then let's talk about how to get away with, away with okay. murder. I want to talk about Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close first, because I think it's a fascinating contrast with what we've just seen in Meryl Streep. Because in this film, you're playing opposite, in the scene we're about to see, you're playing opposite a 12-year-old boy who mm -hmm. I think, my understanding is, had never acted before at that point. Yeah. He'd been on a game show. Yeah. So, and suddenly you're taking the weight of sharing a scene with him. So I just so for people who haven't seen the film, it's about this boy mm -hmm. whose father died in 9-11. In and then he tries to trace, I think it's everyone with the surname Black, isn't it, in New York? And yep, exactly. Abby Black, your character, is one of those people. And he kind of comes to try and forge a connection, I guess, and see if there's a connection between you and his father. And there's this astonishing scene. We've seen a lot of people cry on screen over the years, but that tear and that emotion feels so real and so palpable. I just wonder, without wishing to try and get your secrets from you, I wonder how you access that, that kind of an emotion that feels so authentic and feels so real. Well, you know, in this situation, she's going through a divorce. 
So her husband is leaving her. Her whole life is about to change. And then this young boy kind of comes to the house looking for his father. We just sort of just collide with each other. People ask me how I access that all the time. I just do the work. That's all I can say, you know. I, I do the work. I, you know, back in the day, actor studio, they always tell actors, observe life, observe life. And I know people who've gone through a divorce, and they say divorce is like death. So that's one of the things that I access. And then I use my craft. We have this breathing exercises we used to do in um, school where you think of a song like Happy Birthday. You stand in front of an audience or the class and you sing Happy Birthday. But you do it by taking a big breath and you sing it by just releasing one syllable at a time. It is the greatest acting exercise ever created. Because what happens when you breathe is you see the wide range of emotion going through the actors. First of all, it's just the fear of being in front of everyone. But because you're breathing, the laughter, the tears, the fears, the fear, the shaking, everything comes out through the release of breath. So I do that before I do a scene. I try to do that as much as I can. And we mentioned, obviously, that contrast between Meryl Streep in the clip from Downton and Thomas Horne there, who's obviously a boy with huge presence, but yeah. hadn't acted for. So I'm wondering, when you're, do when you're doing your work, you're also, I'm guessing, having to support him a little bit. You're not directing him, that's the director's job, but you're having to also share the scene with him and kind of coax something out of him. I didn't feel like I was coaxing anything out of him, though. Okay. I don't feel like I do that. I felt I did that in the help, though, right. I will say that, because I was up acting opposite a three-year-old. Sure. Three-year-old. <laughs> but I didn't feel that way with him. He was going through his Asperger's, so there's a sense in him that he could not access his emotions. What I do when I'm with another actor is I leave myself alone, and I receive whatever it is that they give me. I'm not aware that I'm trying to alter their performance, because if I'm doing that, I can't work, but I did opposite a three-year-old. I think, I think that's understandable. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the help, because the help then comes in very, very closely to Extremely Loud and incredible, incredibly mm -hmm. close. And it's the 60s, it's the South, and I'm wondering when you first got that script whether there was an immediate sense of, okay, this is maybe something with my background that I have to do, because this is like personal history for me. I'm always trying to be honest in my interviews. Sure. Um, <laughs> I knew it was a best-selling book, and I knew it would change my career. Okay. <laughs> um, that's what I knew. I love the premise of it. I love Tate Taylor, and I love, love, love all those women who were in it. I did feel like it was an important story. I had a lot of issues with the help. Like I said, I absolutely love the premise. Absolutely love it. I love the fact that Skeeter said, I am going to write a story from the maid's perspective of what it feels like to work with these white women. Operative term meaning the maid's perspective. I don't feel like it was from our perspective. That's the problem I had with it. Okay. I had it from the very beginning. Now, there were a lot of things in the book that I did like, and then there were some things in the book I had issues with. Number one, meaning that Skeeter would offer the women money to tell their stories, knowing that it's dangerous for them, knowing that they were meeting late at night in their homes. And I think at one point she offered someone $38. And in the book, um, the response with all the women were, no, Miss Gita, we don't want the money. We just want to tell our story. They would take the money. <laughs> they would take the money. I mean, look at Abilene was not even eating in the book. She's eating preserves 
given to her by her neighbor. She's barely making a living wage. They would take the money. That's number one. Number two, the anger, the vitriol, and the hatred that they would have towards these white women if they were asked, if they were put in a situation where they were isolated, would have been vocalized. You didn't see none of that. You saw many putting the shit in the pie. But to be perfectly honest, I think a huge part of that, which I am so thankful it was in the book, but a huge part of that is comedic in nature. So it's, e it's an easier pill to swallow. But in reality, if you were to isolate those women, and there was actually one scene where this one woman did express her anger. It was removed from the movie. These black women would hate these women. But I felt that one of the reasons why this movie was so successful, and I do think fantastic actors love everybody in it, wonderful performances, is a lot of people were brought up with these co-mothers. They were brought up with these maids. These maids stood in the gap for a lot of people. And I think one of the reasons why they weren't shown as messy is because nobody wants to stain the memory of that black woman who loved them probably more than their mothers loved them. They want to preserve that memory of them being loving and the women who wanted to be with them all the time, you know, and so they want to keep them pure. And so there was a constant battle that I had. And for instance, I wrote that monologue. That monologue was not in the script. It wasn't in there. There was a scene with Minnie and Abilene where they're in, it's the big kind of uh, uh, scene where they're dancing, all the people are dancing, and, and that's when they're doing the bunny hop and all of that. And Minnie and Abilene are in the back and they're preparing the food and they're laughing about you know, all the, the clothes that everyone is wearing. And Minnie says, well, I gotta go out there and serve some food. I said, yeah, you serving crackers to the crackers. Cut. And it was cut, and it was cut because, it was cut because they felt it was too mean. But there was no problem with the white characters saying nigga, nigga, nigga. So it was, it was not telling the story. It just wasn't. And I felt the power of that narrative is if you, what if you did? I don't think you're losing anything. I really didn't. And it was a huge problem because I felt that the other side of that, to make it even more complicated, is I think that for a lot of people, the only problem they really had with it is the fact that we were playing maids and we didn't look cute. That's not the problem. The problem is it, is it wasn't fully explored. And there was also a scene that was cut with Minnie, where Minnie is being beaten by her husband, Leroy. Beaten. First of all, I had a problem with Minnie having a phone. Can I just tell you? Phones are expensive. We never had a phone. Minnie had a phone. But um, she gets beaten by Leroy, and she calls Abilene, and she is beaten, bloodied. Her kids are around her. They don't have any shoes on, because you could tell they just ran from the house. First of all, I know that scene because I grew up in domestic violence. And Octavia did it beautifully. So she's running to the gas station. She calls Abilene. She says, I can't take it anymore. I can't, he can't beat me no more. And her kids are around her. They're clutching her. And they're, ah, ah, ah. and I said, Abilene, just, I said, uh, uh, Minnie, just don't go back. Don't go back. Just come here. Come here. She's like, Abilene, Abilene. It, it's, it's one of those scenes. It was cut. And it was cut because it was too depressing. That's the issue I have with a lot of our stories. By the time you see the truth, which starts here, and then it makes it to the screen, the truth is so filtered down, and then it's given to you to make you feel 
very comfortable. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not our job to make you feel comfortable. It really isn't. If you feel comfortable, then that, that is your journey to, and your cross to bear. That is the beauty of art. The beauty of art is that we throw it to you, you receive it, and if you shift in some way, we've done our job. That's gold. I, I want to ask you in that case about Tate Taylor specifically, because I was sitting here, I'm sitting here as a white dude, I was surprised that a white man was hired to, to direct that story in the first place. But it does sound like, although you've got these really, like, really profound reservations about the script, it sounds like you had a, a decent working relationship with Tate Taylor. You worked with him again on, on Get On Up. I love Tate. Okay. He, he allowed me to write that scene. And really, you know, and, the, and to further complicate it, it's really not a, necessarily a white or a black director, okay? It's a director, and it's not even necessarily the director. It's sometimes a studio. For instance, in Mississippi, you go to Mississippi, literally, we had a lot of people who vis visited the set. One day, we had about 14, 15 people on the set, and we were all talking one day, and one, once again, observer, observe, observe. They all had gold teeth. Everybody in Mississippi has a gold tooth or teeth. They're in the front, they're in the back, everywhere, white, black. They all, every, I looked at every last one of them had gold teeth. And so I remember at one point I was thinking about that. I thought, because I had a gold tooth as Abilene. You never saw the gold tooth. Wow. Okay, so. Wow. So I'm standing there and I said, you know what? It's interesting that since I've been out here, there's so many of you that have gold teeth in your mouth. And they said, we don't have gold teeth. They all had gold teeth. <laughs> I chose to have a gold tooth in my mouth. We fit it. We did the cast, all that, and it was right here. It went back to the studio. They said it was distracting. So they moved it back. They said it's still distracting. So then they moved it back some more. Y'all remember me having a gold tooth? <laughs> that is what I'm saying, you know, so often to go back, not to go back, to bring up when people, there's a sense that black actors are not as technically proficient, as not good, whatever. That's because we have a gag order on us, okay. you know? And that's the gag order. The gag order is we're doing the best we can to give you the truth, the, the, the actors who are trained, but if the people who are in power are the people who don't want to be indicted, who feel uncomfortable, they don't allow you to do what you do to make you technically proficient. Sure. You remember the gold too. <laughs> In that case, let me talk to you about how to get away with murder, because you're working there. It's Shonda Rhimes, who is the creator mm -hmm. of this, and I wonder how different it is to actually work for a, for a black woman who is who. It's her show; she owns that, and you're working with her. So, how different does that feel on a day-to-day -day basis? Completely different. Okay. I love it. <laughs> I love every bit of it. Now, I am aware that it's a soap opera, that it's melodrama, that people don't you know, see it the same way as, I don't know, House of Cards. But in the center of it is Annalise Keating, played by me. And what it affords me to do is play other adjectives. She's sexualized, she's sociopathic, she's messy, she's smart. She's all of those things. And the best part is she you can't put your finger on her. And I love that because what it affords me to do is to redefine what it means to be a black woman who is 51. And, you know, once again, it goes back to acting school. It goes back to acting school when you would do something in front of the class. And sometimes what you did was really crappy. But the teacher would throw something at you that was really, really crappy, okay? A premise. Or would ask you to play a role that absolutely is something you wouldn't be cast in, and then watch you play it. And ultimately, sometimes it wouldn't be successful. You would make the biggest mistake possible. But within that, those mistakes were little moments of perfection. 
that stretched you and put something different out there that people would not necessarily see you do. And that's how I see Annalise Keating is this fantastic experiment because I still to this day with everything that's on TV, I always say, who is on TV like me? Even on cable. Yeah, yeah. Who is it? Who is having sex with women, men, you know, a white man, black man, white woman like Framka Jensen? Who, who's going to think of that? Who's going to look at me and go, bisexual? Billy Brown, oh, let's put her with Billy Brown. Let's put her with Tom Verica. Let's put her in the courtroom. Let's make her an alcoholic. Let's make her... And it's interesting that I have so many interviews, and I, I love these interviews, where people say, Viola, do you, do you? I really do hate when people smile too much when they interview me, because I know they're going to hit me with something so brutal. Do you have a problem saying, playing someone so unlikable? No. I don't. And I don't think that they would ask a man that question. They won't ask James Gandolfini that question. Listen, Goodfellas, one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, but I still can't watch it again because if I have to watch that scene where they beat the shit out of that man in the bar and blood is splattered all over the room, I'm going to need, you know, heart medication. Nobody ever asked Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro, how did you do that? But also, no one's going to ask a white woman that. No one's going to ask Glenn Close or Robin Wright Penn, how does it feel to play someone so cold? They're going to celebrate it. They are going to explore what could possibly be behind that pathology, okay? And so I saw Annalise Keating as an opportunity to explore all of that to see why, to ask the question, why is she sociopathic? Why is she sexual? What does it mean to play sexual? Every time I see a woman who plays sexual, if she switches her hips and walks in heels like she's been on the runway for five years, I mean, like, I know everyone in this room, every woman in this room has had sex and is sexual. We don't walk like that. <laughs> It's like there's a difference between sexy and sexual. Yeah. I wanted to play sexual. I just felt like I scored in How to Get Away with Murder. And one of the things I told them when I agreed to do it is I said, I got to take my wig off. I got to take my makeup off. I am not going to create some kind of illusion of because I got to bring an audience that I'm going to go to bed in full makeup and lip gloss, and I, I have to play some semblance of a person, some semblance. I don't know if they knew what they were getting themselves into. <laughs> <laughs> that professional relationship that we just saw on screen there, I mean, how nice is that for you to be able to make that connection there? A dream, an absolute dream. You know, I said, you know, Pete, we've got to see her family life. We've got to see her mom. And he said, well, um, who do you think could play your mother? Miss Tyson. <laughs> and they said, well, isn't she too, too old? And I said, Pete, do you realize that I'm 50 years old? I'm not 25. She can play my mother. You know, we don't want a 60-year-old black woman playing my mother. You know, um, they do that too. Um, so when she first came to set, and I, because I, I am a believer of God, that God willed it. When she came to that set, which, by the way, she didn't speak to me because she was in character. It hurt my little feelings too, by the way. <laughs> but um, she turned 90 years old the day we shot that first scene where she's parting my hair and greasing my scalp. Wow. Mm -hmm. The other thing about the show is that it's internationally successful. And I wondered with you, you, you're 
open, and it's brilliant to hear it, about being quite strategic about your career, you know, and actually to be able to appeal. I read that you did the movie Black Hat, the Michael Mann movie, mm -hmm. partly at least, because it was going to go, it's going to be a big thing in Southeast Asia, so it was a Absolutely. chance to, to broaden your... I mean, it's, do you realise how rare it is to actually talk about that stuff openly? Because again, most actors and actresses won't. They'll put their career down to happy accidents, and they'll just, you know, talk as if it just happens around them. But you're very upfront about the fact that this is like a planned thing. You're driven artistically, but also professionally. Absolutely. Because I think that that's one thing they say to actors of color is that you don't translate internationally, that you just don't translate. A lot of times they won't even release the film internationally, or they'll release the film like 12 Years a Slave. There'll be a big poster of Brad Pitt and a tiny little picture of Chiwetel running in the... <laughs> But um, it's got to change. Listen, I don't like change. I'm a creature of habit. I have a six-year-old daughter, and she's making me, forcing me to change. I still want to hold on to my habit. But you know what? The world is changing. I go back to Central Falls, Rhode Island, and in 1965, we were the only black family in Central Falls, the only. You go back there now, you have a slew of Nigerians, Syrians, you have a lot of Puerto Ricans, a lot of Dominicans. It is changing. You'll see a blonde woman waiting at the bus stop with her crinkly hair baby. The world is not the same anymore. It's not the Brady Bunch. And we know more. Art has got to reflect that. And I think what's going to happen is the audience is going to demand it. And I think what it is, it's a holding on to the past. And a lot of money-making people, I think it's rooted in fear, maybe. I don't know, fear. But I think that there's enough people out there that will, t will risk. But it needs to be risked. Now, I'm aware that I've monopolised the conversation, so I want to turn things over very quickly. I just want to talk very quickly about Fences, which obviously is the one thing we haven't really dealt with. Fences, such a fascinating project for you to do now. You've got this long-standing relationship with August Wilson, with Denzel Washington. You've played this part before on stage. So I wonder, was there ever a point where you thought, well, actually, maybe having played this quite recently, 2010, on stage, maybe, maybe this is too close. Maybe actually this is a role, maybe I should move on to other things. Or did you always think... I'm doing Fences. That's my movie. I always said, I'm doing Fences. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I mean, I don't know how you turn up a role like this. August Wilson, to have that sort of narrative, to have that kind of character who is so complete in her journey. So complete. Sometimes you've got to force a journey. I was so tired of making things work seeing work that was not complete and trying to make them complete, getting together with the director and rewriting things. I was so tired of that. This, you didn't have to do any of it. And to be with Denzel, the same actors who did it on Broadway, which almost never happens, sure. and to shoot it in Pittsburgh, absolutely. And it's different. You know, I always say that, you know, I know it's out there and people, you know, are... I'm not saying that they're lumping it, but I wonder if people understand how different this is. When, when have you ever seen this? I mean, there are scenes where there are 11-page monologues, four-page monologues, where you have actors who collectively, Stephen McKinley Henderson, 40-some-years in the business, Michael T., 50 years, Russell Hornsby, 20-something years, I've been in the business 30 years. I mean, actors, journeyman actors have really been out there just fighting the good fight. I remember I did a uh, reading with Lynn Redgrave before she passed. And she said when she left Los Angeles, I was surprised. I had been there for so many years, and I just left. Nobody was trying to make me stay. She said she felt like her past didn't count for anything. And I think there's a slew of journeyman actors, like the actors that I worked with in here, who sometimes people don't understand. They've been around doing great work. And this is the reward. So yeah, I was always going to do it. 
Hi, Viola. Hi. I've got a question that's not that deep, really. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to know that, like you, I'm a fellow actress, and like you, I, I had that dream since I was five. Now that you're there and you're in Hollywood, is it all that is cracked up to be? Is it what it was when you, like, when you were five? Is it what you thought it would be? It is everything that you thought it, it would be and everything you thought it wouldn't be. It's a culmination of both. I think that anyone would say that the kind of disillusionment of a dream, but absolutely, you know, the dream. It's like getting my star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame with Meryl Streep introducing me. But it's the other side of it too. It's the scrutiny, it's, it's the feeling like I, I'm on Facebook and I get so many people who send me scripts and say, if you got my script, my script is going to change Hollywood. It's only a $21 million budget. All the characters are beautiful in it and it's gonna sell. All you need to do is read it and just and, and finance it, Viola. That's a downside. Uh, hi, Viola. Connie Jackson. I've lived here for a long time. I've lived here for 14 years. As you can tell, I'm just an American. I saw Fences just before I left for the airport. I saw the 10 o'clock show before I left from the airport to come back here. And there were three people in the theater. The reason I went at 10 a.m. before my 7 a.m. flight was because I was afraid with two black lead actors. It would not make it to London, which so often happens because the distributors say, that's a black film, and so it becomes urban. Is there something, I know, you know that you all can do collectively, I think, to try to look at black actors financing and getting to the business side and financing distribution companies and opening things up so that we can make certain that our stories are told and, and distributed around, and not only around the world, but also in more theaters in the US. Because it seems as if it's a black movie, it goes into five theaters. If it's a general release yeah. movie, it goes into 3,000 theaters. Absolutely. I mean, um, movies like Hidden Figures and, and Fences were distributed in, what, 2,000 theaters, which is unheard of. And someone like a Denzel is an international star. That's one thing we have going for us. But you have people like Macro Films, which did most of the financing for Fences, which is really, really instrumental with black films. They're gonna be the game changers. You have Ava DuVernay, who does have a distribution company. We're trying. I, I don't know if people understand how much we're trying. And I think the reason why they don't see how much we're trying is that because they don't see it. But just because you don't see it don't mean we're not in the rooms trying to make it happen. I'm certainly trying to make it happen with my production company, or should I say my husband, because he does all the work. <laughs> but, um, and we've sold seven television shows so far, and we've been open since April. We're trying. Taraji P. Henson, trying. Halle Berry, really trying. Kerry Washington, Octavia Spencer, we're trying. And that's why you're seeing slow change is because we are completely tired of waiting. We're really tired of waiting. So, we're going to get it done. Hi. I saw you last night. Yes, you I did. <laughs> yeah, that was me. I've come with a different question, though, this time. This time it's about your production company. You just mentioned that. I wanted to know, what are the difficulties that you're finding in getting that work out there? That's, no, that's, that's a four-hour conversation. <laughs> yeah, we can um, stay for that. You've got to sell it. That's the difficulty. You've got to sell it as something that the masses are going to watch. And big, big difficulty is the writing of it. You can have the group best idea in the world, but then someone's got to write the script. We're having that issue with Harriet Tubman. And I think that people, when they look at the premise, they're like, well, why can't that? You can just write it. No, honey. That is a big, 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 big difficulty. Money. Money is real hard. 
Denzel says it all the time. He calls it business show. And he says, if you have an issue with it, then just lend me $25 million. I'll give it back to you. Just lend it to me. That's really hard. People may, I, I had one guy on Facebook. I have to get off Facebook. <laughs> I had one guy on Facebook said, why can't we sell my script? It's only a $21 million budget. $20 million, $21 million is a lot, because you're not looking at P&A costs. You're not looking at distribution. You're not looking at who are you going to put in the film that's going to command that kind of money. Then you got to put butts in the seat. And like I always say, you know, people always say, well, you know what? You know, why aren't people watching these black films? You got you to gotta watch it. You got to see that it's worth it. it you know, I, I remember doing the help, and we came up against a lot of my people, I will say my people, who said, we're not going to go see the help. We're not going to go see it. We'd, we'd rather see Spider-Man because da, da, da. I'm like, OK, well, you, you've already told Hollywood what you want to see. Because what they're going to see is you plop money down for Spider-Man, so they're going to churn out the Spider-Man. And you didn't see the help. So they don't want to see those kind of movies. There's no one in Hollywood that's going to sit and go, you know what? They didn't see the help. So let's try to do another film where, you know, black people aren't maids anymore. Let's do a black film where they're just more evolved. And, no, they just won't see what, do black movies. They'll just make more. So you got to plop down money for the ticket. That's a big one. It's a real big one. Uh, we're doing Barbara Jordan um, biopic. We have Tony Kushner writing it. And Barbara Jordan was a lesbian. She was a closeted lesbian. And she had a girlfriend who literally was a white woman with freckles. Someone who sort of looked like Julianne Moore, OK? So the big thing is finding a white woman who's a big box office draw to make that movie more compelling. That's hard. That's still happening now. So those are all the difficult. It's, it's a minefield of walking into those offices and trying to convince them that our stories sell. But you can help in all that. And I think it is helping, because Hidden Figures, Fences, all these movies, they're making money. That's a good thing. Listen, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to leave it there. It doesn't get much smarter or much better than Viola Davis. With thanks to Audi. Thank you, Viola. <laughs>